0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the final episode of Bosh Uh Yeah, I, I don't really have a lot to say. If you'd like to support my ongoing creative work, you can head over to patreon.com slash strangely. And uh, that's about it. I'll have a few more things to say. But without further ado, let's get on to that conclusion. Bosh a novel by Strangely Duisberg, read by the author. Chapter 20. The Beach. Where do things come from? Where does anything come from, really? On some level, we know that grain comes from farms, that fish come from the water, that stories come from adventures. But so often, knowing the fact of something's provenance does little to explain the thing itself. A task which becomes even harder to fathom as we move away from the concrete worlds we can touch and toward the more abstract aspects of consciousness and reality. Does the cat exist because I saw it? If I never see it, is there still a cat? If you love someone who cannot ever know you exist, is it really love? Love. When you begin to feel it, does it suddenly start to exist? Formed full and roaring from nothing, or does all the love that has ever and will ever exist reside somewhere in a stockpile? A warehouse full of crates marked crushes, comma, unrequited, or holding the hair back while they vomit. And what of the less desirable aspects of love? What of obsession? Are there also crates full of emotions of the stalkers and flashers of the world? The degraded souls who would as soon commit a heinous act upon an unsuspecting stranger as build a true relationship? And that is only love. Does some part of the cosmos house unimaginably vast stores of, say, anger or fear? Though she does not yet know it, Eleanor has gone to such a warehouse. She is in a velvet blackness, but there is a breeze on her face, the sound of gentle waves breaking on a shore. It is dark because her eyes are closed, so she opens them. She finds herself on a beach. The sky above her head is ashen, the kind of clouds one has difficulty gauging the height of. The ocean, as should be at any beach, stretches away to the limit of her sight. Infinite dark waters with a hint of green. Far out to sea, past the breaking waves, she can see something like whales passing, blowholes blasting water into the air. They appear enormous, but then all whales are enormous, and these are far away, perhaps very far away. Among the whales, other things are swimming, but she does not want to think about them. Beneath her feet, the gray-black sand stretching off to her right and left. There is even more sand behind her. The land is flat, too flat. She is struck by the realization of two things. She has no way of knowing these things, but the intuition is so strong. Like a child's understanding that fire will burn, she knows they are true. The first is that there is no horizon, no curved away edge to this place. It goes on forever, flat. There is nothing anywhere she looks, nothing at all just an eternity of sand and sea. The second thing Eleanor knows is that this is where the sand comes from. This place is the power that makes the empty skins of dead mice move again, but that is not all. She turns to look out over the vast desert, for what is an endless beach with no water but a desert? She sees something in the sand as well, creatures. A terrestrial mirror to the great beasts frothing the sea behind her. There is something else, too. All around her, like twinkles of starlight, grains of sand are disappearing. They flare up like a falling star and then gone. Not burned away, but taken somewhere else. Most are going one at a time, but occasionally a larger group, perhaps as many as a dozen, disappears. What looks like a human hand explodes up from the beach, feeling around. It is a curious thing, like watching the reverse of a person searching about the bottom of a rucksack for a small object. The hand grabs a fistful of sand and then whips back into the ground and disappears. As she watches, the enormity of the place sinks in. What she had thought to be a school of whales is something far vaster. Likewise, the things moving through the sand... No, not moving through. With a lurch in her stomach, she realizes that she is moving, in the same direction as the whales, the creatures in the desert. The sand itself is inexorably churning like a slow river of molasses creeping toward... Toward what? The place is infinite, endless, and yet there is something ahead. Something inexorable. And all around the twinkling disappearances of single grains of sand going, where? And then it comes to her. It is so simple. The sand is going back where she herself came from. As each grain is called, so it leaves this, what is this? This world? No, that word isn't quite right. Perhaps a, not far from her, a hole opens in the ground. With a roar, a fountain of sand a hundred feet high comes blasting out of it the sand being returned to this place, coming home. She laughs, joyful at the wonder of it all. Before she knows it, she's broken into a run, dashing along the beach, following the whales and their counterparts in the sand. There are other things moving along with the whales, and part of her wants to fear them, but how could something in a place so wondrous be frightening? Something is changing as she runs, faster and faster, moving with the sand, the whales, the others, The ground seems farther away now, her legs longer, arms that describe great arcs through the air. She is growing, though it's hard to tell how much, in this place with so little to compare her height to. Tall as a house, now tall as a tree, then tall as the tallest building, and still she runs. Even as she grows, the creatures along both sides of her seem no closer, still off in the vague distance, yet not receding, constant. They are, she knows, massive things. Frolicking and luxuriating in the sand, which is the fabric of this place. The bones. There is music now. Singing. From the ground. From the water. And beneath it, the deep tones of the beasts. Eleanor finds herself singing along. A song she has always known. Just as she always knows all the contents of her pockets. A song without words. Deeper than words. Older than words. Before the first word was spoken, there was music. From the cosmic radiations of the joyous explosion that created all things, to the vibrations of the radio waves given off by the birth of the first star, all is a song. Eleanor sings, and for a time she thinks she can understand the music of this place. The meaning. The purpose. She's a thousand miles high and still running, her feet crossing leagues as though bedecked in enchanted shoes. Somehow easier to see from this great height are the flickers of the sand disappearing and the spouting geysers as it returns. Here and there, hands of all sizes are reaching in and taking sand for their own purposes, some with greed, others showing restraint. Her eyes widen, a feeling of convergence, everything around her taking shape. Perhaps it is only her imagination, fueled by the already impossible things around her, but she fancies she can see it coalescing. If only she could just, just a little more, so close! And then just as she grasps the deeper purpose of the place, the feeling of eyes regarding her settles like a heavy blanket, a shadow falls, a shadow larger than continents, bigger than worlds, blotting out everything, covering, sweeping over and enveloping her, folding her, compressing her darkness. The lining of her coat is flying backward into her pocket followed by the short length of chain and the ring. She knows without checking that the ring will not be in her pocket. At least not right now. Not until it is needed again. She stumbles back and nearly bowls Kells over. The other woman catches her and they both fall against a wall as Eleanor gasps for air. All around them is the chaos of the bookshop crashing down. I was there. I saw it all. Eleanor shouts above the din of the falling shelves breaking glass and rising flames. I saw where it comes from. Kells does not understand. What? Magic, Eleanor shouts, triumphant. I saw where magic comes from. Unable to contain her exuberance, she seizes the startled Kells by the shoulders and kisses her. When she pulls back, she sees the foundation of childlike wonder being laid upon the face she has grown so fond of. Kells is stammering unsure of what to say. Don't you see it? The sand. We had it all wrong. It's not evil. It's not good either. It's just magic. And I think I know how to send it back where it belongs. How do you suppose we do that? My coat. It has, it's some sort of doorway to where the magic lives. I think if we can get the sand to go inside my coat, we can send it back. As they move to climb out the nearest window, their path is blocked by the lashing tendrils of the sand construct. It heaves itself into the bookstore and begins thrashing about in the flames, absorbing the spilled sand from the fallen mice. A screech draws their attention up a long aisle wreathed in flame. A second, smaller construct of sand comes striking and slithering along it, pursued by an enraged slice. The cat continues to rend and tear at the thing, even as it grows. Slice is losing the battle, but fights on, oblivious to the scratches on its flanks and the swelling of an eye. In a flash, the two congregations of sand meet and join together, forming a large mass, lashing, thrusting, and smashing. The thing doesn't even seem to be fighting anyone specific anymore, not the cat, nor them, choosing instead to revel in the wanton destruction of the bookstore, bathing in the spreading flames. Kells looks down and sees a few scattered buttons from inside the dead mice. Slice has shredded the skins, leaving the buttons and mouse hides littering the floor near their feet. She reaches down and picks up one of the buttons, feeling a jolt move up her arm like an electric shock. The feeling is unpleasant, yet she grits her teeth and reaches for another. As she gathers more buttons, scooping them into her hat, the attacks of the sand construct begin to concentrate on the little juggler. Eleanor, who has managed to take refuge behind a desk, feels powerless to help. She is steeling herself to try all the same when Kells dives into the shelter with her, flushed with excitement and covered in numerous small gashes. She grins at Eleanor. I think I know how to get it to follow me. How? Eleanor's face becomes a rictus of determination. She peeks around the desk at the monster, her teeth showing in a fierce smile. With a yowl, Slice streaks past them and dives out the window, tail aflame. No time, says Kells, already moving toward the roiling mass of sand in the center of the room.
1: Just wait in the filing room, through there. I'll bring it through the door, then we can run out the exit.
0: Eleanor moves in the direction Kells has pointed. The fire has not reached this far yet, and she experiences a respite. She
1: looks back through the door just as Kells shouts, Hey you! Remember me? With the chainsaws? Ah, yeah, I bet that hurt you, didn't it? The sand
0: tree pauses in its thrashing. Once more, the distant wind-like voice whispers into their ears. Oh, yes. You
1: presume presume to to approach a second time. time. All hells, yes, I do.
0: Kells holds out her hand, palm up. The pain of holding the buttons makes her want to scream. Instead, she shouts,
1: Look what I got!
0: The voice makes a kind of hissing sound as all the branches of the tree turn to point at Kells, a thousand accusing fingers. Kells laughs, the sound loud in her pain.
1: Come on, you twig! Let's dance!
0: The tree surges forward like a mass of grasping hands, but Kells is already running off down a flaming aisle of books. Her hand darts out and pulls the already tottering shelf over. It creaks as it falls, crushing part of the thing pursuing her. Eleanor has come part way out of the filing room, hoping to help Kells, but finds her friend gone. She's about to run off in pursuit when she hears Kells, from somewhere off to her right.
1: Eleanor, I hope you're ready because here we come.
0: She ducks back into the room just as Kells appears around another flaming shelf, running as fast as she can. Several cinders flicker in her clothes and hair, threatening to flare up into dangerous flames. As Kells comes pounding toward the filing room, her pursuer explodes through a row of shelves to come skitter-crashing after her. She turns for a moment as she reaches the door to hold out the buttons again.
1: Come on, then. Here we go!
0: She dives into the room just as the thing draws itself into a tight mass, not much larger than a person, to follow her through the doorway. Kells runs toward the back of the room and the emergency door to the alleyway, shouting,
1: Now, Eleanor! Now!
0: Eleanor, hidden beside the door, leaps forward and flips her coat over the thing, covering most of it. She twists, half falling, half running, hot on Kells' heels. The coat is now wrapped around the twitching mass of sand. The ring is on Eleanor's finger. As she tries to escape, she pulls on the ring, hoping, praying this will work. Kells looks over her shoulder as she crosses the threshold into the alley. Her eyes meet Eleanor's. The taller woman is radiant in triumph. She is on the cusp of the doorway, trailing a silver chain attached to the red lining of her coat. Kells can see her card, already well-thumbed in Eleanor's hand, along with the ring she is pulling on. The chain goes taut, drawing Eleanor up short. Her eyes widen. No! Kells shouts as Eleanor is lifted bodily off the ground and dragged into the swirling mass of fabric and sand the maelstrom quickly dwindles to a single point, a small dot, and then disappears in a whiff of smoke. Kells staggers out of the alley around the front of the building to where Martin is lying, stunned. She rushes to help him up. The building is almost entirely aflame, a forest of knowledge burning bright in the darkness. Far away, Kells can hear the Dina, 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 song of emergency vehicles singing somewhere over the rainbow. Wait, Martin gasps. The trunks. Don't worry about them. No, I can't save the shop, but I can save that. He breaks away from her, possessed of a sudden adrenal energy. He grabs the larger trunk and manages to drag it halfway across the street. Kells leaps to help, and together they move both of the trunks to safety. Martin collapses on the curb, his beard and mustache singed. With a start, he looks up at her, eyes fearful. Kels, what's happened to Eleanor? He is on his feet, already preparing himself to charge into the inferno. She grabs his wrist to stop him. He turns, looking not at her, but at her hand. She makes a surprise
1: noise and lets go. Martin, I... she... she didn't...
0: He nods and then surprising her envelops her in a hug in all the years they have known each other he has never so much as shook her hand she stiffens at first and then relaxes resting her head on his chest smelling the musty smell of his books and the faraway promise of pastures full of sheep that all tweed holds he stiffly pats her back awkward at his display of affection it's all right We'll talk about it later. What about the... His voice trails away. He doesn't need to finish the thought. She knows what he means. It's gone, she says. Eleanor took it with her. They stand for another moment. The fire crackles merrily. Somewhere over the rainbow draws still closer. From a place further away than should be audible, there is a whisper. It is a susurrus like the voice of the sand the grip of kells's arms around martin tightens and then she breaks away she knows he hears it too they look around terror mounting are they martin asks i don't know kells replies already casting about on the ground for a weapon of some kind kells look martin is pointing in the air above the middle of the street There's a glimmer it looks like a single flake of glitter long ago launched from a confetti cannon floating down from the ceiling of a theater the point becomes a scrap of burgundy cloth and then explodes into a billowing sheet a gargantuan tent carried away in the wind from the writhing fabric descends a shoe massive larger than a car though shrinking the shoe followed by a leg to scale comes to rest on the ground in the middle of the street with a resounding thud. The front windows of several other businesses shatter. A light post falls, and Martin's shop shakes, threatening to collapse. Martin gapes, afraid to move, but Kells runs forward even as a second leg crashes down. The legs are still massive, though now less than half their size at their first appearance. The rate of diminishment increases as the billowing cloth explodes upward to reveal Eleanor. 20 feet tall, and laughing. The burgundy cloth seems to turn inside out as it falls down behind her to become her jacket. Kells holds out her arms and the massive woman picks her up, spinning around and around, shrinking all the while. By the time their pirouette stops, Eleanor has returned to her usual size. Kells smiles up at her, lost in the moment of reunion. Their joyous kissing prompts a loud clearing of Martin's throat, and they move their embrace to include him which he doesn't seem to mind. Their joy is short-lived as Martin's eyes take in the shop. It begins to fall upon itself. A house of usher dragged inwards, its soul flown skyward on ten million sparks. Epilogue How does one react to such a thing? The destruction of years of hard work and sacrifice of an incalculable investment of love. Eleanor sits across the street, watching the shop burn. The trio sits on the old trunks, Kells and Eleanor together, Martin a little apart, hands gripping his knees so hard the knuckles have turned white. Eleanor can feel Kells's shaking as she weeps, deep sobs that nevertheless make no sound. Perhaps she mourns the books, or something less tangible, a bigger thing, too difficult for a heart to hold. Without a word, Martin pulls a spotless handkerchief from the pocket of his beleaguered jacket and hands it to Kells. Eleanor wonders how much of this he is seeing, how much he will remember. And yet, even in the depths of his catastrophe, he has reached toward Kells with a simple kindness. Later, much later, after the firefighters and the police have come and gone, After the fire is well and truly out, after the last gawker has grown bored, three friends remain, sitting side by side on the trunks. The tragedy notwithstanding, the silence between them is companionable, comfortable, the calm after the firestorm. The sun has risen on yet another glorious late fall day. Though she is loath to break the silence, Eleanor can feel a familiar tug in her heart, And an itch in her feet. She wants to stand up and just walk away from all of this, but the tug and the itch have a peculiar catch to them. It is as though her heart is a sweater caught by a nail on the wall, the merest wisps of wool slowing her departure. She means to say something like, I should be going, but finds the words ashen in her mouth. Kells senses her discomfort and reaches up to turn Eleanor's face to her own. What is it? I think I need to leave. It's time for me to move on. Eleanor hears herself saying the words, but they do not feel right. A piece is missing. Something critical. Kells just nods. But? Eleanor smiles at the gentle prodding. I want to invite you to come with me. But both of you. She gives Martin's shoulder a gentle shake. He blinks eyelids closing and opening like the heavy portcullis of a castle. No, says Martin, jaw set. I'm staying. There's still plenty of books for me to care for. I've always stored the most precious in these. He pats the steamer trunks, both dented from their fall but otherwise intact. I could sell any one of these and buy a brand new apartment, but since my apartmentment is fine, I'll, I'll get by. Plus, the shop is insured. I always hated the back corner anyway, Starting over will be fun. Maybe this time I'll build myself a Parnassus on wheels, or maybe I'll buy that old train station I've been looking at up north of here. You never know. I'm still young. I've got... Something in his voice breaks. Eleanor finds she can no longer bear to look at him. Instead, she pulls him toward her in a tight hug, feeling him melt into it. When they part, he is crying. She pretends not to notice. He stands up with abrupt stiffness. Martin produces a large handkerchief and walks away, blowing his nose louder than is necessary. Eleanor turns to Kells. What about you, lady? I've never wanted this sort of thing before, but I really am finding myself wanting you to come along with me. Kells ponders a moment and then says,
1: Can you wait for me at the shattered anchor tomorrow morning? If I'm not there by ten... I'm not coming with you.
0: She stands up on tiptoe and gives Eleanor a tender kiss on the cheek. Kells hurries off down the street, pausing only a moment to give Martin a companionable slug in the shoulder. Eleanor moves to follow, but Martin catches her hand as she passes him. He stares down at the point of connection, shocked that he has initiated it. Eleanor follows his gaze and then looks up at his face. He is smiling through the tears that stain his sooty cheeks. I told you once, he says, that I loved someone very much and then I lost them. She nods, but stays silent, allowing him to continue. I've been so careful not to touch anyone with affection because I wanted him to be, to be the last one. She finishes for him. He nods, swallowing hard the click of his dry throat audible in the morning stillness. And he always will be with you, Martin. But you don't have to cut yourself off from the rest of life. At least, that's what I tell myself as I wander the world, hoping for something to change. Eleanor stares off down the street at Kells's diminishing form. And has it? He asks, letting her hand go to resume blotting at his cheeks and blowing his nose. It might she says. I have to hope it will someday. Otherwise, why am I here? He straightens, tucking the kerchief away, clearing his throat. Well, I expect you'll be staying with me tonight. If that's all right. Well, on the one hand, you have just destroyed my entire bookshop and my livelihood, but on the other, I'm quite fond of you he holds out his arm. Shall we then? She takes it, and they stroll back to his house. Eleanor is never able to remember what she did for the rest of that day. Martin spent most of the afternoon cooking a large feast. They both ate with hearty appetites, though both professed to not be hungry. As the early cloak of evening garbed the city, Eleanor retired to bed. Her last thought before falling into an exhausted sleep was of slice. The cat had disappeared. She hoped the wretched feline was alright. Much later that night she wakes up to see Martin sitting in the chair by the bed, looking out the open window. Sleepily she pulls back the covers and pats the bed beside her. Without a word he gets up and climbs underneath the covers, moving for the first time since she met him without the formal stiffness she has become so accustomed to. He puts an arm over her and she holds it tightly with both hands pulling him back toward her. Closeness. She can feel the lightest shudders from him as he cries silent tears. The last thing she remembers before she falls asleep again is squeezing his hand tightly and feeling him squeeze back. He is gone in the morning. Eleanor dresses in the chill of a misty morning, preparing for a quick departure from Martin's house. Near the door, she stops for a moment, then goes to his desk, searching through the drawers. The usual bric-a-brac fills them. Pens, old receipts, notepads. But none of it is what she needs. In the last drawer, she finds what she is looking for. A box of Martin's stationery. She has seen him send letters with fancy pre-printed labels, and she takes a few of them. After a moment's thought, she adds them to the pocket of her coat that holds a tiny book alongside her spare pistol, a stick of chewing gum, and a minuscule travel chest set. Just as she goes to put the package of labels back into the drawer, something gives her pause, sitting there in the drawer, under the stationery. It is a book, large, old, leather-bound, and very heavy. She lifts it out of the drawer with care and looks at it. The cover has that same odd symbol on it, the circle not quite complete, missing only a small portion of its circumference. This much is bridged by an indent. Unlike the ones she's seen before, in her coat and the letters, this dent is on the upper right, about two o'clock if it were a timepiece. She wonders if it moves position through the day. Just before she opens it, a thought stops her. Martin is a good man. He deserves his secrets. Maybe it's a coincidence. She's already promised herself she will visit him again. She can ask him about it then, though she will be on her guard. Careful not to leave a sign, she replaces everything, though she knows he will guess what she has done when he receives her first letter. Perhaps it is for the best. She could ask him about it in her letters. She leaves Martin's house, pulling the door shut firmly behind her. Well before ten, she is tucked into a table at the shattered anchor, sipping a coffee and staring outside at the light drizzle which has been falling all morning. For a moment, she thinks she can see a cat stalking an alley across the street. Then it is gone, and she cannot quite be sure. And then she does see a cat, slinking toward her through the rain. Slice has seen her too, approaching intent on connecting. The cat sidles through the door, past the legs of a customer making their exit, looking for all the world as though it belongs. And so it does, Eleanor thinks to herself, a smile playing across her lips. Slice presses a questing feline face up under the hem of her coat, making a purring yaw that sounds like a request. She grants it, scooping up the cat and settling the damp creature into a large pocket, where it falls asleep at once. As she finishes rearranging her coat, she hears the front door of the cafe open. Eleanor looks up and smiles. The end. I've got to admit to you folks out there that I'm a little bit emotional finishing this. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for taking this journey with me and for putting up with the delays in production and everything like that. I really wanted the story to be absolutely, exactly perfect. And I know that making something perfect is impossible, but, you know, sort of trying to find that mixture of perfect and not quite perfect. So, again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for taking this journey with me. The... Audiobook is now complete. I am hoping to do some sort of Kickstarter to uh, fund a print run of maybe like a book on CD kind of release with some art and things like that. So stay tuned to this podcast. Uh, keep the subscription going and I'll put up a little announcement audio in the new year. Uh, yeah, and I also, I'm thinking I'll put it up on Bandcamp or something like that. If you'd like to support this podcast kind of project and also get access to exclusive content that I make uh, just for my supporters I highly, highly urge you to go and check out my Patreon it's patreon.com strangely if you head over there there's all kinds of fun content that I make I make videos and I take requests for song covers and uh, now that this whole voiceover audiobook recording thing is something I'm doing I'm thinking I'll probably try to take requests for poem readings uh so if you'd want me to read something like i don't know uh, the raven by edgar Allan poe or maybe a selection from house of rain by uh craig childs or something like that i'm now just looking at books on my shelf uh you know i, I could read you uh self-working mental magic from dover press or a bit of ron chernow's alexander hamilton biography what else do i have here Oh my goodness, there's just too many. Theodore Rex by Edwin Morris. Anyway, uh, please get in contact with me. You can get in contact with me by emailing strangelywritesbooks at gmail.com or through my website, strangelyandfriends.com or barchemansier.com. Please uh, leave a review there on iTunes and let me know what you thought of the whole story and tell your friends about it. And until next time, don't stop looking for the magic.